This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, both from The Athletic. First up, Sean Reed. He is a staff writer for The Athletic who covers the Las Vegas Raiders. He's here to talk about his new podcast series from The Athletic, Between the Lines. It is a podcast on what it means to be black in the NFL and how race impacts each level of the league's organizational charts. And Tashawn and I go deep into how that podcast came to be, the people he spoke to in terms of his reporting, and why it is an important subject. He's followed by another colleague at The Athletic, Evan Drellich. He is a senior writer who covers the business of baseball, and he's the author of a new book, Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. Evan Drellich discusses his book, which centers around the Astros cheating scandal, and how that came to be, the whistleblowers that were used for the reporting of the book, Major League Baseball condoning Jim Crane, why they've been so protective of him, and then sort of the Wall Streetization, the McKinseyization of front offices and player personnel decision making. So two guests this week, two very different topics, but uh, but both excellent at what they do. Deshaun Reed and Evan Drellich coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, Sean Reed is a staff writer for The Athletic covering the Las Vegas Raiders. He's here, returning, by the way, on this podcast to discuss being the host of a upcoming podcast series from The Athletic called Between the Lines. Podcast dives into what it means to be black in the NFL and explains how race impacts each level of the league's organizational chart. And I'm pleased to be joined. But Sean Reed, Sean, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Appreciate it, Richard. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. All right. So why um, why is this a topic that you wanted to immerse yourself in? Because if you're doing, I believe it's a five part podcast series. So you know, if you're doing that kind of level of podcast series, this is clearly something that took you months to report. So why'd you want to? Why'd you sort of want to jump all in on something like this? Yeah, it definitely took a while. Um, I've been working on it for 16 months this month. Um, still got a little bit more ahead of us as it continues to, to roll out through March. But it, it really, the origin of it goes back much further than even that. And it's just 
um, you know, naturally being a, a black man in America, race has always been a part of my life. You know, I, whether whether I acknowledge it or not, like I have no choice uh, is going to impact me in, in various ways along my journey um, and still does. Um, but, you know, growing up in, in Ferguson, Missouri, um, I had my parents are, are older, like my dad is in his 70s. My mom is toward the latter half of her 50s. And so they both lived through some things in their upbringing that kind of seemed like foreign concepts to me, you know, the civil rights movement, segregation, um, you know, some of the, the uprisings that have happened over the years. Um, and, and so I, I was very knowledgeable about that stuff, but it was almost hard to envision it. Um, and I, I think that changed for me in, in August of 2014 with the killing of Michael Brown. Um, you know, he was somebody that, you know, same skin color as me from the same neighborhood, same age, um, and kind of seeing, it wasn't the first time, obviously, that, that you know, there had been instances of police brutality, you know, within St. Louis, but the reaction to it, the, the, the wave of protests, how it became a national story, the discourse that followed, that, for me, was the first time that I saw something that sort of lined up with those experiences that my parents described. And that was, for me, about two weeks before I was going into, um, college at Mizzou to, to pursue a career in journalism. And um, it, it sort of carried over at Mizzou. I mean, my sophomore year, there were outbreak of protests at Mizzou in response to some racist in incidents on campus as well. And so I kind of back to back there had some pretty vivid um, moments surrounding race as I was sort of creating the, the foundation of my journalism career. And I, I kind of just made a decision that, you know, like come hell or high water, like I was going to make race and the issues that affect my people and the good things, you know, about my people as well, part of my coverage, you know, really regardless of what I was writing about or where I ended up. And that carried with me throughout when I started my career with the athletic covering Florida State football. I wrote about race pretty often, um, did the same thing when I, when I transitioned to the Raiders. And, um, I, I, you know, I feel like this is you know, the topic of, of race in the NFL, it's, it's become more commonplace in the wake of Kaepernick and, and after the summer of George Floyd. And now the NFL is sort of co-opting it with Inspire Change and things of that nature. And we talk about the hiring cycle every year, but I just kind of want to make that discussion, you know, or, or not, not make it, but, but take that discussion and, and sort of communicate it through my lens in a different way, a unique way. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the first person to create a podcast about race. It's not what I'm saying, but um, you know, this, this narrative format um, and, and sort of bringing these voices alive and using my voice to guide the listener through, I, I think it could hit in a different way than, you know, me writing essentially the same article every year. Yeah, I, that's, I appreciate that background and that context. The, um, the first episode of the podcast premieres on February 14th, and then there's going to be new episodes released weekly on Tuesdays. So at, at a certain point, like structurally to Sean, like you have to figure out like what each episode is going to be about and like, can there be a through line that goes throughout? So how did you, you know, in a purely like, uh, like editorial play, like how'd you break this down and what are the, if each, if each episode has sort of a, like a large topic, like what are the topics of each episode? Yeah, so early on, that was really the bulk of the initial work was ideation and, and figuring out a direction. Um, 
And what we ended up landing on across these five episodes is the first episode is is essentially some historical context for how race has been handled in the NFL since its inception. You know, spoiler alert, it hasn't been handled well. <laughs> and um, sort of bringing the listener up to the present, um, you know, and, and some of the issues that continue today and, and why sort of giving some insight into why it's something that the NFL still struggles with. Um, and, and then from there, it, it sort of takes a journey up upwards through the organizational chart. So we start with players in episode two, uh, really kind of honing in on, you know, their increased activism in the wake of Colin Kaepernick, but also, uh, you know, just some of the overall culture of football that, you know, what, no matter what the topic is, they're sort of taught to just focus solely on the game and if they have anything else it's a distraction and it's bad and that's just sort of the way they've been taught you know and, and we're just now starting to see some more of them buck that trend and then sort of be themselves openly and, and not be afraid of it and then we go to the coaching level which um you know obviously a lot of that focuses on the lack of black head coaches and, and the difficulty of, of their journey up the ranks um and, and then we go on to the executive level which We've actually started to see some progress amongst, you know, the number of diverse GMs and, and, and team presidents that are getting hired. Um, but, but we sort of explore the challenges that have existed in the past and, you know, sort of ponder whether this 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 surge that we've seen is something that can be sustained moving forward. And then the last episode, episode five, will be, you know, essentially using the hiring cycle, um, specifically the coaching hiring cycle to take a look at where the league stands today, um, because that's something that. You spoke spoke about that through line, um, you know, the the sort of something that whether it's a player, a coach or executive looks at is the hiring cycle in terms of, you know, how much progress has the NFL really made if this continues to be an issue, um, you know, regardless of all the inspire change and the messages and the decals and the, you know, the shit on the sidelines, like what are they doing really to, to sort of change that power structure and that organizational structure within the league and, and Usually for most organizations, the most front facing person or people, I should say, are quarterback and the head coach. And so we, we've started to see there be more black quarterbacks. Obviously, two of them are going to face off in the Super Bowl. Uh, but the, the, the lack of black head coaches is, is pretty jarring right now. And so the last episode was sort of look at that, um, see why that continues to be an issue, especially in comparison to seeing progress amongst GMs and presidents. Like, why isn't that same progress there for head coaches? And sort of spinning it forward to to what's next for the NFL through this lens of diversity. And so, uh, you know, really the common and it's not, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious. But the common thing with with the, the issue of diversity at all these levels is it rests on the shoulders of the owners. And, you know, and as of now, there are no black owners. Um, you know, it's mostly a group of white men. And, you know, they've, they've shown an unwillingness to really budge on this. And, and that's a, a, a tough problem to solve because, I mean, you can't make somebody sell their team or, 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 or make hires how you want them to make the hires. You can't really tell them what to do. You know, they're almost 32 individual businesses, um, including the Packers, who obviously don't have a, an individual owner. But um, it, it's figuring that out has stumped pretty much everybody. And so it's within that structure, what else can be done to, to sort of try to create some change? And it's, it, it you know, I, I think it, it's football, you know, it's just a sport. And, and so it, it kind of gets downplayed the significance of it when it comes to 
the bigger picture in, in terms of how diversity and race are handled in our country and in the world. But people have to keep in mind, like how successful and impactful and influential the NFL is. And so if the NFL were to make a shift to become a more diverse league where you see it's more commonplace to have black and other diverse coaches and general managers and presidents and you know the players are able to speak out more and we, maybe we get a, a black owner or two like that can shift things in, in corporate america and in america as a whole um for the better if it's done like, obviously we haven't seen it done but um you know the the, the potential benefit here is much bigger than just having some coaches who look different. You know, it, it's not that small as people try to make it sometimes. And, um, you know, we, we haven't been able to see that in action. But I think if you sit back and think about it, um, you, you can start to envision that. And that's something that we try to put forth in front of people with this podcast. So, I mean, you know this certainly better than me. There's a lot of people, like, theoretically, you can talk to. I mean, in fact, you'd never really run out of people just given the number of uh, black players who played in the NFL. Obviously, there's a ton of coaches. There are uh, experts just on race in the country and uh, hiring and management and things like that. But at a certain point, obviously, you have to try to get people who are willing to to be taped, right? Who are willing to like um, have their voices heard. And in some cases, you know, there's some real danger to making a decision to be public, right? We've just seen people um, who are public about race and clearly um, it ends up hurting their career. Or And we've certainly seen coaches who quit their jobs due to a lack of advancement. So, you know, when you were thinking about like who I want to, you know, who we want to approach for this project and to get their voices on air, how'd you, how, one, how'd you go about doing that? And two, who ultimately did you get that, pe- that, that my listeners will be able to hear when the podcast breaks. Yeah, that's the tricky part about this being a podcast instead of a written story. Is there there is no anonymous source <laughs> with the podcast? Like we're gonna <laughs> we're, <laughs> right. we're gonna hear your voice and people are gonna eventually figure out who you are. Even if I don't say, and so that added an, a, an extra layer um, to people being hesitant. I would say to to talk to me for this series, um, and it. It definitely made it difficult uh, naturally, but we didn't. We weren't going to like eliminate opportunities for ourselves ahead of time, and so we shot our shot. You know, trying to talk to everybody. You know, in terms of all the black head coaches in the league, several former black head coaches. Um, you know, Colin Kaepernick. We tried to get um, basically everybody that that you would think of in this realm. We tried to get. Um, you know, a lot of those people said, no, it's going to be, it's going to happen. Everybody's not going to be on board, but we did get some people and player wise, uh, I would say the most notable names, um, well, I guess he's, he's more than just a player, but Doug, Doug Williams, um, the former Washington quarterback, who was the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl and also went on to be a college head coach and now works at, as an executive in the league. Um, he's somebody that, that has seen how race um, impacts things at all levels, really, um, in, in the world of football. Uh, Ladanian Tomlinson, um, Doug Baldwin, um, and then at the coaching level, um, that's probably where I saw the most reticence to talk about it. Um, in, in terms of, and it, it the probably is not coincidence. I mean, we see among all the the levels in the NFL, that's where we see the the least amount of diversity, and then so. It, w- it would make sense that they would be the most hesitant to talk. You know what I mean? Um, and so we, we sort of 
we, we sort of have to look at the assistant level more so than the head coaching level, I, I would say, in terms of people to talk to. Um, and so I talked to Clarence Shellman, who was the he's, he used to be the Chargers offensive coordinator back in the day when Lindanian Thomason won MVP and Philip Rivers was around and they had like a top five offense every year. And he was almost like Eric Bieniemy before Eric Bieniemy. Like he was, he didn't call plays, but he was offense coordinator on his highly successful offense. And unlike Bieniemy, he was hardly getting interviews, let alone getting head coaching jobs. And then eventually, he got burnt out to the point to where he just quit. He retired and and walked away in his fifties, which is young for a coach. Like he could have kept coaching for another 10, 15 years if he wanted to, making a lot of money. Um, and it just wasn't worth it for the mental and physical toll that it took on him. Um, I talked to Ron Rivera, um, the Washington head coach, and obviously he's not black, but being a diverse um, individual, a Mexican descent, I mean, he, he went through some things that were similar. And so he kind of compared and contrasted his experience um, compared to, you know, his colleagues who you've seen, you know, as black men trying to make it work at the coaching ranks. Um, at the executive rank was probably where I, I had the most success. And maybe that's just Byproduct of the increasing numbers there. I mean, right now there's eight black GMs, which is NFL record. There's five black team presidents, which is an NFL record. Um, and I got Jason Wright, um, who, who was the first black president in NFL history. Um, Sandra Douglas Morgan, who the Raiders hired as the first black woman to be NFL president. Um, Terry Fontenot, who the, the Falcons GM, he was their first black GM in team history. Um, Doug Williams, who's, who's an executive now. Reggie McKenzie used to be a GM. Um, Champ Kelly, the Raiders assistant GM. So there's there's a there was a bunch of people that, that were willing to talk about it there. Um, and maybe that's in, you know, just like I said, just reflective of the, the recent progress there. Um, and then, as you mentioned, uh, there's some external people as well that I talked to. Rod Graves, who used to be an NFL GM, but who now runs the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which essentially pushes the NFL to, to be more diverse. Um and so we, we, we got a lot of different, a wide range of perspectives, um, even talking to some other media members um, who obviously were not in the NFL. But for those of us who covered it for a long time, the Jim Trotters, the Steve Weishes, um, others who have kind of been adjacent to the league, like Marcus Thompson, um, Tim Kawakami, Bomani Jones, um, some others to give their perspective, um, people that are you know, I'm only 26. These people have been covering it for much longer than I have. And so they've seen some things and experienced some things that I haven't, obviously. And so we, we tried to cast the, the net as wide as we could. And I'm pretty happy with what we caught. Um, and then it's going to make, you know, this, this five episode series pretty good, I hope. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Here's one last thing that I want to ask you, and it's it's not an easy question for, for you to answer, and I'm sure you've You've pondered it. Um, the NFL, when it comes to issues of race, will always talk a good game, right? They're always going to publicly say something institutionally because, you know, the the ownership is not dumb and they know that the majority of the league's players are black. I think they, you know, they obviously want to um, invite people of color to watch their game. That said, you know that you cover the league every day. The game is immensely popular. 
the game is immensely uh, financially profitable, right? Like, what is the incentive for the NFL to ultimately change when it comes to race? Because the incentive to me has to be like institutionally, has to be internally. But I could also, and you could do this better than me, I can give you chapter and verse where they've absolutely not changed institutionally. You look at the ownership, right? You look at like who gets jobs and who doesn't. So that's my sort of big question to you. And I know it's not an easy one, but like, is there incentive for the NFL to change? No, I don't think so. I don't think we can really say that. And the thing that the NFL has has taught us is they're going to have to be forced to do something. They're not about to just do it out of the, the, the goodwill of their heart. You know what I mean? And so, and historically, what we've seen to force, whether it's the league office or individual owners to do something, it's legal action and losing sponsorship dollars. Uh, and that's, we'll see with, you know, Brian Flores' lawsuit against the NFL, the Clash Action lawsuit, whether that's able to shake some things up on the coaching front, um, sponsorship dollar wise, like, the best example that we have of that is is Washington changing their team name um, in response to some sponsors pulling out. But we haven't really seen it, ha- seen the league have to grapple with it as a collective, I would say, since since probably the Rooney rule. Um, and, and that, you know, it had success initially, but we've seen it. It's become pretty ineffective in, in the years to come. And so I think that's what it's going to take ultimately. Like the, the league isn't suddenly like these owners, none, none of these people involved are going to suddenly start acting different unless it starts affecting their pocketbook. Like that's what it all comes down to. And like, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to act like I'm you know, as mad as I've been at the NFL about diversity and their issues. I'm not not going to watch football. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like they, they're getting yeah, my same here. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They, they're yeah. getting they're getting money from me regardless. You know what I mean? And so why would you stop? You know, you're mad, but you're still going to watch. And that's what it comes down. So something has to break that chain of them making these billions and billions and billions of dollars every year with no consequence as to how they handle their business. And really the only two things that I think personally can do that are, are legal action and sponsorship dollars, because like all the shame in the world and public pressure, like that shit ain't, obviously that's not <laughs> making them do anything. Like I don't know how much more we could apply to them between Kaepernick and, and the summer of George Floyd. And we see really nothing, I wouldn't say nothing, but but little has changed in, in terms of how the NFL approaches these things. And so that's what's going to have to come down to. And then we'll see. I mean, maybe the Flores lawsuit does, you know, really create some substantive, substantive change that is sort of, you know, consistent and doesn't just whittle away like we saw with the Rooney rule. You know, maybe that happens, but um, it's very hard to feel good about that happening until it does. It's one of those things where even the most optimistic of people, you know, they, they it's with a very large, you know, or, or a very wide outlook of, yeah, maybe in 50 years when like we have some different owners who are more progressive, then, then things will get different. You know what I mean? And whenever, whenever you know, I mean, we, we see small examples, I guess. I mean, the, I guess you could say like the, the Bucks ownership where, you know, they've had several black head coaches and they've allowed their coaches to do things like have all black coordinators or the 49ers. We see almost every year they, they have some diverse coaches and executives get hired away. And so there are there, there's like these little glimpses of owners shifting kind of in their worldview, but it but it hasn't become anywhere close to being wide reaching enough to, to change the overall makeup of the league. And so I, I think unless we're just going to sit around waiting, you know, 
for another hundred years to pass by, pass by um, in terms of creating some change that even I, you know, in my 20s will, will see in my lifetime. Like it's going to have to be something externally that forces the league to act on this front. I appreciate that answer. It's honest. And, um, you know, the only thing, if, if there's any knowledge that I've gleaned from getting older, it's just that ultimately change happens because of money. Right. And that's where you hit on like sponsorship dollars. Like that's the, 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 interestingly enough, at the end of the day, when you talk about player empowerment or like power of the owners, it's usually like the, the ultimate power for all these leagues are like media slash television. In this case, like the television money or the sponsorship ad dollars. Like that's who really can move any of these leagues. Um, you know, we can write a lot of pieces and people can sort of complain, but historically that's what they react to and generally speaking that's generally about what they react to uh let me give people just the uh the details of this again because um i know tashan worked incredibly hard on this guy mike smeltz uh uh who's a terrific audio producer at the athletic who did as well the um the first episode of between the lines will debut on february 14th uh you can get the episodes on the athletic football show feed and then new episodes will be released weekly on Tuesdays with the final two episodes dropping on March 7th. It's obviously a really, really important topic. And um, uh, I heard I, I did uh, listen to the sizzle reel that you guys did, and uh, that was pretty awesome. So I have very high hopes for this. I imagine it's going to be really good. Thanks, um, man. Deshaun, thanks. Yeah, you got it. Thanks so much for coming on today to talk about this and uh, continued uh, success covering uh, – Covering an NFL team in one of the best cities to do it, in my opinion. <laughs> and uh, and uh, thanks so much for joining me again on the Sports Media Podcast. No problem, man. Appreciate you having me. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as I said at the top, Pleased to be joined by Evan Drellick. He is a senior writer who covers the business of baseball for The Athletic. We are colleagues there. Previously a reporter for the Boston Herald, Houston Chronicle, MassLive.com, MLB.com. He's here today because he has a new book out that I think is going to do really well. Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. And I'm pleased to be joined by Evan Drellick of The Athletic. Evan, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Why is the story of the Astros cheating an important sports story? Well, it's pretty rare that we've had a, a story of any team in any sport collectively cheating and uh, that team also winning its world championship. You know, the Astros had positioned themselves as this really smart, progressive team, which in many ways they were. Uh, but there was this underlying um, ugliness and, and kind of cultural rot that was going on. And the sign stealing is one element uh, of that. And I, I think, you know, the title of the book, I think, is relevant because it is such a cliche in sports that winning does fix everything. You get to hold up a trophy 
And well, what can anybody say? And and in the case of the 2017 Astros, we have a direct example of where holding up that trophy at the end actually gets superseded by something else, uh, by what was going on beneath it, what was powering it. Um, so I think there's a lot to it. But in general, the notion that a, a championship team would collectively cheat, I think, is pretty flooring for a lot of people. You you have done excellent work on this for The Athletic. You and Ken Rosenthal did a lot of notable pieces on this. As you know, it's one thing to sort of cover this in real time and to write it for a digital publication or even like sort of a long-form magazine piece, but a book is different. So what was the challenge for you as an author to turn what had been sort of a you know, in many ways, a week to week, a day to day story for you into, into something in book form. Yeah. So this book is not a sign stealing book, not alone. It's more answering the question, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this massive scandal? It's really, I tell people a management culture book with a baseball background, you know, there's some on field stuff in here, but this is different than reading your typical baseball book where you're going over different games and um, you know, we have a few of them, but it, it's, it's a lot about the behind the scenes and the stuff that frankly you, you really rarely hear about, or if you do hear about it, it does take a lot of time um, to hear about. And I had covered the Astros as a beat writer starting in late 13 into uh, through spring training in 16. So 13 to 16, I was in Houston um, there was a lot of stuff going on there. The, the, the 2014 season was a wild time. These questions of culture, uh, I had actually been the, really the first to prominently report on back in 2014 for the Chronicle. And um, it, it was clear to me, and I, and, I, and I certainly set out to have the reporting. Um, you know, I, w- I wanted to see if others saw it this way as well. But th- there are all these threads that come together in this book where where you see the um, the impact of Moneyball in, on the game. You 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 understand the commissioner's office's uh, involvement in not just the, the scandal itself, which certainly th- there was an involvement there, um, but in the the way the game has changed in the last decade. Uh, and so it's it's really a broader story that does also provide a lot of detail about sign stealing. So it was. It was kind of a monstrous, torturous task of, of the sports investigative reporting, going back through all these different things. The second chapter of the book is about the Cardinals. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of different court cases and events and people that I had to report and research on. And look, it proved to be a real bear, but um, I'm, I'm very proud of it. You know, it really, it, it, I, I was working on this book for about two and a half, three years. But it's really 10 years of my reporting career. It, it's about a, a, a decades plus time in the sport. So I'm going to I want I'm going to at a certain point ask you about sort of baseball's interest in policing this. But before that, you know, Mike Fires is a real interesting figure in all of this. He was I think it's fair to call him a whistleblower um, regarding this. He went on the record with you and Ken Rosenthal regarding this scandal. And I think you wrote yourself, it's impossible to say exactly how the world would have reacted to the story had Ken not spoken to him if all the sources had been unnamed. I wonder, because this goes beyond sports a little bit, and it's interesting to me, Evan, did, did uh, what did you learn about the toll on whistleblowers through your experience on Mike, with Mike Fires? 
Yeah. You know, look, there, there were really four whistleblowers, you know, the, the original story in 2019 cites four sources. Um, three of them were anonymous. One of them was Mike fires on the record. Um, I, I have myself thought about the toll and the difficulty of speaking up when you see something wrong that's happening and uh, it can turn your life upside down. Certainly, you know, Mike, this will always be attached to Mike fires. I, I personally believe he showed great courage and being willing to go on the record in, in the book and, and in our reporting previously, he explained uh, at least some of his motivation, which was, you know, he wanted the game cleaned up a bit. You know, he, he saw these younger pitchers walking into Minute Maid Park in Houston and just getting shelled because they didn't know that this uh, truly off the field form of cheating was, was going on. Um, you know, I think it it's rare to complete a story like this, right? To actually get this story done, I think it, it was a little miraculous. And then to add in on top of that, that we did have somebody on the record, I think makes it further a little miraculous. Um, it's just uh, it, it, a really rare set of conditions came together. And um, yeah, I, I, I think the world needs whistleblowers. Uh, certainly on topics that are even more serious than the malfeasance of a baseball team. Um, but it's a very heavy burden for people to carry. So I want to ask you, you know, we have seen many times in sports, not just baseball, but all sports where a league or a team claims that they're going to investigate something or there's an internal investigation. And ultimately that internal investigation um, proves to result in, either very little or the organization may even say they're doing an investigation just to change, uh, change the news cycle uh, a little bit. So within that, I, I want to ask you sort of on both of these sides, one, in your opinion, how interested is baseball in truly policing matters of like in-game cheating? And then secondly, how interested are the players in policing this? You know, there, there's a part in the book uh, quoting Gene Orza, who was a longtime lawyer uh, high up at the Baseball Players Association, the union. And uh, he points out that it is very rare that MLB will ever start an investigation, create a commission to evaluate things unless it is prompted by public outcry. It, you know, it, it is Major League Baseball's Department of Investigations, which is run by attorneys, um, it, it does not exist to uh for the sake of fairness and righteousness and justice it ultimately <laughs> exists uh to serve the interests of the the commissioner's office and by extension the 30 owners the clubs you know there's a very clear example of this in the science stealing saga where mlb moves very quickly and swiftly and and uh, I think relatively aggressively on the Astros. And, you know, there's debate that could be had about that with the lack of punishment for players, direct punishment. Um, but then you have the Red Sox scandal that Ken and I also uh, break the story of. And their behavior was not as egregious as what the Astros were doing. And so on one hand, they didn't deserve likely, I, I think by most people's opinion, to be punished the same way the Astros had. At the same time, uh, the findings in that, investigation the league investigation were very convenient everything fell on one rogue uh employee allegedly rogue employee jt watkins you know and the reporting for the book 
it, Watkins was the video room operator, the guy who was decoding right. some of the signs, which then get get out to the the field. Um, you know, the book sh- uh, has reporting that Watkins was actually paid uh, by players in his suspension year. You're supposed to be unpaid in your in when when you're suspended in in that type of situation, and it just goes to show you the players themselves felt they were benefiting, right? The notion that the only person who is culpable for what was going on with Boston, particularly after uh, the commissioner himself had, had tried to say, look, we're going to hold the manager and the GM accountable for this type of behavior. Um, you know, that that is MLB, in my opinion, attempting to end a storyline. They're, they're trying to quiet it. You know, if you're, if you were a commissioner of a sport, you don't sit there and go, I want more scandals. More, more, more. Um, you know, so they're behaving in, in, in a, the way that you would expect. But I think that is important for people to understand. This is not a body uh, that exists um, for righteousness. You know, some, sometimes the results are, are, could be considered righteous, but uh, it's, it's far more political than that. I thought this was really one of the most interesting parts of the book. And it's just your reporting on Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros. And you have a line, you have a, uh, sort of sentence or a paragraph in here where you say three massive scandals, discrimination, war profiteering and cheating have somehow befallen Jim Crane's companies. Publicly, he appears to have taken personal responsibility for none. And MLB has condoned that stance at every turn. Why have so many people been so protective of Jim Crane, Evan? Well, for one, when you have a lot of money, um, that is an advantage. You know, Jim Crane has been very litigious. I uh, filed a lot of lawsuits in his life and professional career. I, I think to one point here, uh, the business that Crane founded in the '80s, Eagle Global Logistics, you know, where he where he really rose to um, great success financially, uh, had a massive discrimination lawsuit brought against it uh, by ex employees. Uh, the EEOC was involved. It, it was very big news at the time. Uh, and it was news to an extent when Crane was buying the team. I think in a way to Crane's advantage, this it happened before the ubiquity of the Internet. It, you, you know, you can find stuff on it online. but You really got to dig through archives to kind of get to the meat and potatoes of it. It takes some effort uh, to find out about this. And um the, the the legal proceedings were complicated. One of the cases is sealed, remained sealed. Um, and and so it's a little bit buried in history. And, you know, there is this element of sport washing, right? You you buy a team, you buy a sports team. If you have a checkered uh, reputation, and, and one of the reasons, the motivations is you want people to look at you positively. You want to, you're buying affection in, in a way, right. right? If you can Great build point. a winning baseball team. And, and I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that, one of the motivations for a guy like Crane, um, who did have employees go to federal prison for war profiteering, who did reach a multi-million dollar settlement in the discrimination uh, suit, was to improve his image. And when Crane buys the team, there's a letter unsigned uh, from the commissioner's office. I, I assume it was written by a lawyer. Uh, it, it is it, it reads like like legal writing. Um that you know says look crane had no uh knowledge of of either of these this, this was all stuff going on underneath him and it, it exonerates him and then you know if you compare this letter that came from baseball central office in 2011 when the when he's buying the team to 
what Commissioner Manfred wrote uh, in 2020 when he put out his Astros investigation. It's the exact same type of free pass. And you got to remember, the commissioner's office, the commissioner serves the interests of the owners, you know, and, and he's not shy about that. And, and you know, again, kind of going back to the previous point, people look at the commissioner of baseball, oh, he should be righteous and, uh, and all these things. Well, sure, that's idealism. But in reality, he is promoting the business interests of his 30 teams and 30 ownership groups. Right. Yep. I mean, you, yeah. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, he's judged. Uh, how is he judged? He's judged by those by those ownership groups in terms of how much money he can bring into the into the coffers. Um, right. Not necessarily like um, not necessarily how much he is a moralist when it comes to these questions of the of the game. There's something there's something sort of runs throughout your book and you've you've written a lot about this, too. And, you know, you have a um, you, you quoted a GM in the book about the, the wall streetization and like the McKinseyization of front offices and of player personnel decision-making and, you know, wall street McKinsey, they have a lot of, you know, very bright people who may be quite frankly, moralistically challenged, right? Like the, the ends are the, are, are what matters here. Um, how much of baseball in 2023, because front offices have a lot of, um, these wall street McKinsey types, or maybe they just, I don't know. They, they, they don't, how do I sort of ask you this? Like they, what, what someone might see as immoral or cheating the game, they see it as opportunistic and a way to, um, you know, a way to get the game a little bit more in their organization's odds. You you know, you saw this with the lockout. You, you see it with, on the field, the rule changes that are coming into place in the sport this year, just starting now. And, you know, the book is really this chronicling of the outgrowth of Moneyball. And, it, it, and it's been for some number of years now, people seem to finally realize um, the costs and the effects of the Moneyball thinking. You know, if you go back 10, 15 years, there was a period there where everybody was just frankly, slobbering over innovation in the sport and <laughs> not right. considering what else went along with it. And if you did, and I lived this, if you did present um, criticisms of people in the industry, stakeholders, that that went against that general thinking um, and analytics, you were painted as a Luddite. You know, and and look, I was a pretty young guy when Moneyball came out. I, I devoured it. I remember reading it on the subway. I am in no way somebody who sits there and goes, I hate numbers. Um, and, and really, it was the case that there was a lot of shades of gray um, with what these teams were doing. And, and you see, I'm very proud of the book because you really see on a granular level what the front office of the Astros was trying to do and the negative and sometimes positive impacts it had, and it all remains relevant because you did just have this lockout where they go through tanking, where they go through service time issues. And what are those? Those are ways that ownership groups were trying to be efficient, trying to leverage the rules in their favor. And that is exactly what happens on Wall Street in finance and beyond. So this is a question when I, I knew you were coming on that I really wanted to ask you, and it's... Um... I don't know. It's more like a philosophical question in in many ways than anything else. So we're now in 2023 and George Bringer 
plays baseball where I live now in Toronto and he's got a big contract and it feels like the whatever connection he had to the Astros cheating scandal is long gone. Carlos Correa obviously just signed a a new de- new deal after, you know, obviously all the other stuff that sort of went down with him, but that had nothing to do with the Astros cheating scandal. That was that was about Correa's health and how teams interpreted that. Jose Altuve, I make the assumption is going to be a a Hall of Famer one day. I guess we'll see what happens with Carlos Beltran, but you know, the Astros just won another World Series, right? So, like, I, I ask myself that, yeah, like, they went through some significant bad press. And, yeah, a lot of people certainly lost their jobs. But I don't know. If you got Jim Crane in a room somewhere, wouldn't he at some point say, like, it was all worth it? Because because look at what the end result has been both for my team and even the players who were part of this. From Crane's perspective, and you know, I, and I think you could you extend that to the 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 perspective of those who are really at the top of the food chain, CEOs of large corporations. Um, I, I think you can, in many cases, where there are wrongdoing, cheating, criminal scandals, you can you can look back and go, well, did it really hurt them individually? In the end, uh, I think it's a very fair question. You know, Steve Cohen, largest penalty for insider trading in history. Uh, and, and we talk about sport washing. Well, now he's with the Mets and, um, you know, Mets exactly. fans love him. Um, I, I think that is always a valid question. I, I do think one of the values of the book, you know, w- 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 is that, yes, the Astros did win a World Series this year. But when you go through this book and, and you and you see Everything that came along the way in the last decade, 12 years, um, you see the people that were stepped on, the people that were fired. I do hope it prompts a question for people of, you know, is that title uh, worth it in the end? D- do you feel good about it? And some fans will always feel good about it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no stranger to how fans feel. I was myself a gigantic Mets fan growing up. Um, you know, I, I lived and breathed that I, I spent a ton of time on a message board, but you know, it, it, it the title I do think is apt because I, I hope it prompts people to consider, well, well, does the title actually fix it? And I, I think when Jim Crane has his obituary written, there will be more than just he won two or however many world series titles he ends up having in his time as uh, Astros owner. Last one for me. And this is more of a, like a, sports media nerd question but when you have a book like the one you've written this is not like a uh feel good hey i'm I'm writing a memoir of albert pujols and his incredible achievements or something like that like you know there's um there's a real business element to your book there's certainly a lot of reporting and impressive reporting but ultimately you know you want this thing read and you want this to be sold so what if from your perspective like what's the challenge of selling this to the public and in some ways i think you mentioned even this on this podcast do you try to sell it as a a bit of a uh like a business narrative as well as a sports story because to me that's the that sort of is a possible way to get a little bit of crossover readership because you don't have the inevitable here's this like feel-good story about you know this great sports team that i want to celebrate it's literally the exact opposite i probably could have asked that question a little bit more elegantly but so how do you as the author approach it because it's um you know you do have to convince people to read about something that uh you know not necessarily is like 
cotton candy and applesauce. Yeah, I, look, I think there's kind of two buckets of this. There's interest in the scandal, and the book certainly serves that and and forwards it and and gives more detail than we've ever had. Uh, and then there's what you're talking about the 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 broader business management culture story, and and so I certainly in seeing what some outlets have written so far, it's no surprise people gravitate, media gravitates to to the sign stealing. And I hope that kind of ends up being an entree for people who might not have otherwise had interest in um, front office moves, you know, money ball type of stuff uh, to to kind of have their eyes open. And and then at the same time, I, I, I hope that people who do have interest in money ball and, and read that book and uh, and all the books that have followed from it, right? You know, there's been this formula for for years now about praise the innovation, praise the innovation, and this book does praise some of it. Um, but I, I I think this is a a sober and realistic uh, portrayal of what's actually going on with baseball teams. I mean, in the in the introduction, you know, I, I just I say this is baseball without the varnish. It is without the mystique hucksters. And you know, God bless people who do that. People love that type of writing, right? The the uh, spiritual connection of baseball. But me personally, as a reporter, as a person, I like to know what's really going on. And and I, I hope and believe there are people out there who also enjoy that type of reporting and, and reading. Evan Trellick is a senior writer who covers the business of baseball for the Athletic. His latest book, Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess, comes out February 14th, 2023. You can buy that everywhere. Books are sold, and obviously check it out on Amazon. There's already pre-ordering for it. As someone who's read it, it's really, really excellent. Um, it, it's uh, a well-deserved book that uh, belongs next to all the smart baseball books that you have read. Uh, Evan, I wish you a ton of luck with this uh, book. I think it's going to do well. It's clear that you put your uh, intellect and passion into it. And I appreciate you uh, let my listeners know. Thanks, Richard. Uh, a little bit of insight into it. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Appreciate podcast. it. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Sean Reed and Evan Drellich for their insight and those conversations. If you like these kind of podcasts, head to uh, wherever you listen. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how the podcast continues. Recent conversations, Fox NASCAR announcers Mike Joy and Larry McReynolds on calling the Daytona 500, as well as appealing to both uh, new school and old school fans. Had NFL reporter Jim Trotter on his questioning of Roger Goodell on DEI issues, as well as going viral with his Rihanna video. Chad Finn came on to talk about uh, Fox's Super Bowl coverage. James Andrew Miller came on to talk about the passing of Barry Sachs, a longtime ESPN producer. February 8th, Adnan Verk and Adam Amin, longtime good friends, were together uh, talking about a number of broadcast uh, sports uh, media and broadcast things. And then January 27th, Kevin Burkhardt and Greg Olson. There should be something in the archives that you'll enjoy. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at 13 for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.